Lenten followers of Christ, fixing your eyes on Jesus. We don't have a king in our country. You know that, of course. But here's some history review. In 1781, after the Continental Army defeated the British Redcoats at Yorktown, the 13 colonies needed a leader. After rebelling against George III of England, some wanted to make General Washington George I, but wiser voices prevailed. Independence didn't mean a new monarch, so George Washington became the first president of these United States of America. But we do want a king. I I don't mean over our nation but in our own lives. In fact, we want to be kings and queens. We want to rule our personal and private kingdoms, and our kingdoms will be known by status and success, by wealth and by health, by pride and possessions. All of that, all of this tells us that we might well have eagerly added our voices to the shouts in 1 Samuel 8. Samuel the judge is too old and his sons are both greedy and incompetent. Give us a king, the elders of Israel demand. Give us a king like all the nations around us, they clamor. And God gave them what they wanted. Though the following verses of this chapter tell them that they will rue the day when they called for a king. Fast forward about a thousand years. God's covenant people have had a king, a series of kings from Saul to David to Solomon to dozens of others. Some have ruled with godly wisdom. Some have ruled with evil stupidity. Some have ruled over a single kingdom. Some have ruled over the divided kingdom. And all of these have ruled until foreign kings conquered and captured them, sending God's people into exile. Now they are ruled by the most powerful king, the emperor of Rome. They live in an occupied land. Pontius Pilate is the provincial governor representing Tiberius Julius Julius Caesar Augustus, his full name and title. And Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, is a tetrarch, a minor ruler. His jurisdiction is over Perea, which is to the east of the Jordan River, and to Galilee, the province to the north. This is why he has authority over that carpenter from Nazareth, the man some acclaim as the promised Messiah. John 18. Our continued reading of the Passion of Our Lord tells us what happens when the trial of Jesus turns from a theological tribunal before the chief priest to a political interrogation before the Roman governor. The Jewish leaders change their strategy. Blasphemy is no longer their accusation. Now they tell Pontius Pilate, this man is doing something evil. He's presenting himself as a king. That's treason. That's why we're bringing him to you. Go away, Pilate responds. Deal with him according to your own laws. No, they respond. We can only stone Jesus for a religious offense. We can't execute Jesus. We can't crucify him for a political crime. You have to do that.
Here in verse 32, John adds this commentary. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We heard Jesus' first passion prediction last Sunday morning from Mark 8. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And in John 3.15, I also said this on Sunday. Remember that amazing painting. Jesus claims to Nicodemus, I must be lifted up just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Jesus echoes that in John 12, verse 32, when he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All of this stands behind the question question that Pilate asked Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? To which our Lord responds, did you come up with this question by yourself or are you just repeating what others are saying? And then Jesus says these important words. He speaks this important truth. My kingdom is not of this world. He could have said, but he doesn't. I do not have a capital, a palace, and a throne. I do not have a flag and an anthem and soldiers with weapons. I have no glory, no power, no pomp, for my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate, who knows only power and pomp and allegiance to Caesar, balks. Ha! he exclaims, what is truth? Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of truth. The chief priests and the scribes and elders of the Jewish people are filled with fear and hate, and Pilate, the pagan Roman governor, is filled with scorn. But we are filled with faith. We have a king, and our king is the way and the truth and the life. Our king does not conquer by deploying warriors and by using a sword of steel. Our king, the true king, conquers by the cross. Jesus does not call us to take into our hands swords and spears and to fight for him. He is crucified with empty, with open hands. Jesus is crucified without armor, without helmet, without shield, but bleeds and suffers naked at Golgotha. There he defeats the enemies of sin and of Satan and on the third day, the enemy of death. There for us he wins forgiveness of every sin. We have a new king and we have a new kingdom. His kingdom comes with grace. His kingdom comes with the truth by the truth of the gospel. His kingdom comes at the font And at the altar, his kingdom comes with the smiling favor of the Father and with the friendship of Jesus and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There are no boundaries or borders, for this kingdom includes people of every nation and tribe and language. Indeed, as we heard in Revelation 4, We are his kingdom, his kingdom of priests, offering him glory and dominion forever. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.